0: back again this time to talk about Karl Marx's and Friedrich Engels's The Communist Manifesto, probably the most cited book of all time, or pretty close to it. Uh, But before jumping into it, a few things to say. You can find me on Instagram at theory underscore and underscore philosophy, if you want to see pictures of my cats, mostly. Um, Also, you can find this on any kind of podcast forum. Uh, There's a link just right to Podbean in the description, which is probably the easiest. Uh, Also, if anyone can contribute, that would be great at Patreon or through PayPal. Again, links in the description. Uh, and I'd like to thank Boz, Honrich, James, John, Eust, Killswitch, Matt, Nicholas, Sebastian, and Ashley, who have all been really helpful in keeping this going. And uh, with the continued support, hopefully I can keep doing these on a weekly basis. Now, without further ado, let's jump right into the Communist Manifesto with the introduction that starts out pretty famously, where they write, a specter, That is like a ghost. A spectre is haunting Europe, the specter of communism. Now for them this seduces the fact that communism has some potential. It has some power. Because either there's like a you know, there are people trying to mobilize it, or there are people trying to exercise it, that is, to try to send it away. Now that for them is evidence of the fact that it has some effect. So people like the Pope and Tsar, Metternich, Guizot. Uh, French radicals and German political spies all conspire, either you know, overtly or covertly. Would it still be to conspire? Anyways, uh, to exercise communism to, to stop it from happening. So that puts us here into chapter one titled Bourgeois and Proletarians. So they begin this chapter by saying that the history of all hitherto, up till now, existing society is the history of class struggles. So what they mean by history, though, in this context is all written history. So all history we essentially have records of demonstrate class struggle. So some of the forms that this assumed was the distinction or the struggle between lord and slave, between patrician and plebeian, between lord and serf. And now we find ourselves in the conflict between capitalist, or bourgeois, and worker, or proletarian. So historically, these conflicts you know, resulted in changes because these dynamics no longer exist, at least, you know, in the same way. Of course, slavery still exists. Uh, But as far as like uh, an economic principle upon which society is formed, we can say that slavery has at least to some extent transformed. It is no longer the same as it it once was. Uh, Of course, if you consider sweatshop labor we could very easily clump that into slavery but that is less uh, an overt demonstration of slavery than it is just the way that capitalism appropriates slavery for its own ends now with each of these conflicts historically they resolve themselves in either for them the reconstitution of society at large or in the common ruin of the contending classes so these are the possible outcomes and they are inevitable you know if there is conflict this conflict will resolve itself in some form. So this is their idea that they would take from Hegel, the idea of the dialectic, where you have one side in conflict with another, whose conflict then, in its resolution, produces a new system, what is called the synthesis, that can then combat some other antagonism or is then faced with another antagonism. So thesis meets antithesis, their conflict results in a synthesis, which then becomes a new thesis that can then be opposed by another antithesis, and so on and so forth. So now we find ourselves in this capitalistic uh, world, the one in which the contending classes or the kind of um, conflict is between the bourgeois and the proletarian. Now, for them this uh, conflict or this antagonism is decidedly less complex than some of the ones we saw previously. So they give the example of like how in Rome, uh, you know their social hierarchy was comprised of like patricians, knights, plebeians, slaves, you know, priests, everything like that that each had their own stake in the kind of political uh, hierarchy. Whereas for them, and we're going to get into this a little bit more as we go, what we see, is a concentration of power in both the bourgeois and the proletariat. So, you know, you, you might say, well, no, the proletariat have no power. And that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that they are um, their identities are kind of um, solidifying to the point that society is very clearly uh, distinctly split between one and the other. Now, how did this come about? How did we find ourselves in this situation? Well, Marx and Engels say that the bourgeois essentially emerged from the kinds of labor that were conducted by the serfs under feudalism. So setting up like towns and stuff, um, you know, setting the the tone for that, which would be the first, you know, uh, emergence of the first kind of cities. And they write that the burgesses were the first elements of the bourgeoisie. Now, additionally, things like colonization allowed for markets to be opened up you know, uh, for new raw materials to enter the market that could only be attained via uh, some kind of exchange. So, here we see the emergence of a kind of exchange value, one that plays more, places more emphasis on the barter of things and with, um, you know, the need for a kind of universal equivalent that is capital, that is money, because it's it's difficult for me to say, I want a pair of shoes, and if I don't have money that we all agree upon to trade for, it'd be difficult for me to find an equivalent, because it would be totally dependent on the person that I'm buying it from. The person I'm buying it from might need, you know, instead of shoes, they might need, I don't know, uh, shirts. But if I don't have shirts to give this person, then I am screwed. Whereas with money, I could sell something I don't need that that person doesn't need, I can get money and then suddenly we have a medium through which we can exchange. So with this colonization and with this emergence of what they kind of call a new market, a market predicated, you know, more heavily on exchange, the this put new demands on labor that couldn't be met by feudalism. And thus we saw manufacturing took its place on the world stage and with that it necessitated a kind of middle class laborer, someone who could work for a wage, instead of someone just working on a piece of land to extract from that land what was necessary for themselves and for the Lord. Suddenly that wasn't enough. Now it became about the accumulation of wealth, you know, as as an end in itself. But this was short-lived. After manufacturing, they write that industrial production took uh, took force. So you know, now we see things like the production line emerging. Now we see things like you know steam, um, you know production and the use of coal and things like that in order to make things more efficient. So this, I guess, catalyzed the development of like commerce, navigation, communication, you know, across the world, because trade became something that was you know was was intensified. And with that, there were new, um, new necessities and new needs for more efficient ways to travel and trade. And with that came a certain degree of mobility for people, where people could go to new places much quicker, and by virtue of that, they could then, you know, settle in new places much quicker. And what is important for Marx and Engels is that this doesn't come out of a desire to explore the wonders of the world. This is simply a product of uh, the search of capital or the accumulation of capital. So for them, then, we see in their words how the modern bourgeoisie is, is, is itself the product of a long course of development, of a series of re- revolutions in the modes of production and of exchange. And with this, the bourgeoisie has positioned itself as the political class par excellence. It is the uh, political class with, with no substitute, Replacing, of course, things like monarchy or the aristocracy or, you know, any of these kind of royal forms. And they have been responsible, Marx and Engels writes, uh, for exercising all feudal, patriarchal, and idyllic relations. So it's important to write, or to write, to note, that Marx and Engels see capitalism and see the emergence of the bourgeoisie as almost a necessary step in human evolution, human social evolution, but we'll get into that a little bit more. For now, I want to just comment on that because for them, it was necessary that the bourgeoisie would try to do away with feudalism and and patriarchy and idyllic relations in favor of a kind of equality. So no longer, at least this is the idea, no longer would someone's position in political life be determined by who their parents were. The idea was that if you accrued enough capital... Which was ostensibly open to everyone, uh, whether or not that's the case is obviously up for uh, debate. Uh, ostensibly open for everyone, then we could see a kind of de- democratic form of of power emerge. So it has reduced all of these things. They write that is feudalism, patriarchy, um, you know these idyllic relations to callous cash payment, egotistical calculation, and free trade and it has therefore substituted exploitation for what they write is naked, shameless, direct, brutal exploitation because it turns all people into wage laborers who, beyond you know having to give their lives over to making the bare minimum in the form of wages, have to give their identities over because suddenly their identities are entirely predicated upon this thing called capital and what capital allows them to have. So all relations now are money relations, that is, they're relations that are predicated upon money. You know, the old moniker that blood is thicker than water suddenly gives way to something like um, capital is thicker than water, maybe. As far as capitalist production goes, what we see is the most advanced form of production that completely eclipses all the previous forms. So they you know, they say that like the wonders of the pyramids are nothing, nothing compared to what capitalism can afford, the kind of um, you know potential allowed by capitalism, and that is because it constantly, and and this is part of its logic. Part of its logic is to constantly revolutionize and to evolve. That is to always develop its instruments of production and thereby its relations of production, and with them the whole relations of society. So there are no limits, at least to the in the eyes of the bourgeoisie. They look upon the future, they look upon the, the globe with absolutely no limits. Capitalism goes wherever it can extract surplus labor or value from. It doesn't see a point in stopping. Now this reveals a kind of cosmopolitan reality of capitalism, that is... Suddenly, we see cooperation between nations, whereas previously there might have been conflict because we all find ourselves in the common uh, stake of capitalism. We are no longer burdened by our own kind of economic predispositions. We can all agree on this one fundamental thing. And there we see new forms of cooperation emerging that the likes of which have not been seen. You know, global. Uh, cooperation on a global scale. And this extends to intellectual contributions where they write that intellectual creations of individual nations become common property. And that allows for a general increase, a kind of uh, elevation or augmentation of knowledge where more people can garner more knowledge because just more is accessible to everyone. And so the bourgeoisie, in their words, draws all even the most barbarian nations into civilization and it creates a world after its own image this kind of cosmopolitan supposedly democratic character but this isn't all something to celebrate they liken this the bourgeoisie to a sorcerer like from fantasia uh, if anyone's seen that that movie where uh, a sorcerer sorcerer who has lost control of their own powers like in Fantasia where Mickey uh wants to um i guess render his work more efficient by using magic so that the mops and buckets are you know doing the work for him but they get out of control and Mickey finds himself flooded in in his uh master's uh Yensid I believe uh Yensid's house or castle so this is one of the negative side effects or consequences of this kind of uh accumulation that is power seems to be getting out of the hands of the bourgeoisie and that actually threatens them because the bourgeois still want to maintain some degree of political authority but if the means of production start extending to new nations new knowledges start emerging and so on then that essentially uh, challenges them because now they might not be seen as the be-all end-all of this system they might not be the actual kind of um You know, managers of it, or it might be revealed that they actually have no control in the face of this. So they say that they then, um, the bourgeoisie then orchestrate collapses, they orchestrate crises to some extent. So they take it upon themselves to do two things. The first one is enforced destruction of a mass of productive forces, which is to kind of, you know, remind everyone that the bourgeois has this control albeit a superficial kind of illusory control. And then the second purpose is, uh, the second way that they re- maintain control is through the conquest of new markets and by thorough exploitation of old ones, keeping that sense of kind of, that kind of colonial spirit that always had someone at the helm, you know, the figurehead, uh, to give them that, that personality, to give them that, um, that kind of directly visible Uh, identity and imminent to capitalism then because the bourgeois feels that they have to control it is or, or are the tools to undo the bourgeois and the people that wield those tools those instruments are the proletariat are the workers and as the bourgeois grows so does the proletariat or as capital grows so does the proletariat because capital only grows with more labor more more wage labor and interestingly these laborers take on a a special form one that hasn't been seen throughout history they become what Marx and Engels call an appendage of the machine an appendage of the the tools they're using and uh, an appendage of the um, kind of relations of capitalist labor more generally they're cogs in a machine essentially they lose that kind of personhood. They lose their subjectivity and become objects to be exploited or, more specifically, commodities. And that is because a wage is the minimum that can be paid to a laborer while the maximum of possible surplus labor, the maximum of possible uh, labor, can be extracted from them. So you pay them the minimum while extracting from them the maximum. And this affects everyone. Even those people that might fall in between the proletarian and the bourgeois, like shop owners or, or anything like that, are forced to adopt this style lest they get left behind because of the efficiency of the you know global capitalistic system. So just, you know, take as an example the way that Walmart will buy up uh, small shops around them and then for pennies almost, just to put them out of business. Or, you know, they'll reduce, like if there's, I don't know where this example comes from. I'm not making it up. It does come from somewhere, but I don't remember. Like if there's a bike shop in a a town and a Walmart shows up, Walmart will sell their bikes at an even cheaper price than the bike shop to put the bike shop out of business, right? So then these laborers or these shop owners are given one of two options, either concede and just, you know, let their shop die, or they have to then, you know, try to, reduce the price of their bikes, which will be reflected in them reducing the labor that goes into it by cutting wages or anything like that so that they can compete. So the proletarian goes through a few different phases for Marx and uh, Engels. They go through two, primarily. Where in the first one, they're atomized. That is, they're completely individuated. They are are separate um, parts of the capitalist machine. So now this is broken down into three sub-phases. That is, they go from, you know, individual laborers that have no real connection to one another. Then they recognize that they are, you know, laborers in a factory. And they're like, oh, well, we have this common stake. We are all individuals in this kind of factory setting. We should, like, recognize that, that we aren't alone in this. And then third, they recognize themselves as being laborers of a region that are directly opposed to, you know, the kind of bourgeois forces of that region. So at this phase, this kind of broad phase of, of alienation, where there is some semblance of, of, of unity occurring, um, the proletarian's anger is directed at either the instruments of production, which is where they might, like, they, they smash to pieces machinery, or they set factories ablaze, or against an individual bourgeois. As though they just see that it's this one person, this one maybe factory owner, this one kind of bourgeois bourgeois, uh, faction in this town or region or whatever, that is the problem. So they set their eyes on that. They do not see the systemic uh, component to this, how this very same act is being repeated in all the towns and all the nations. And because they misplace their anger, because they fail to see this kind of systemic uh, component to it, they then risk strengthening the bourgeois, because then the bourgeois as a systemic product of capitalism can then slip away. They can, they can evade detection. Now, the second phase is when they actually organize into, into groups or unions, like workers' unions, where all laborers recognize their common stake as laborers and wage earners. This, and this really comes about by one of the benefits of capitalism, that is improved communication, which we would think would really be at its height now with something like the internet, uh, but not, not quite. But the idea here was that with uh, capitalism comes the means to undo capitalism. So the idea was that with this uh, increased communication, then you could have more cooperation on the part of the oppressed people. So with this communication, riots might break out, more large-scale uh, political conflicts, and with that comes the emergence of the proletarian as a political class. Now, the conflict isn't quite so neat, whereas it, it, it might look like at this point, because the bourgeois and the proletarian are then you know two political classes, instead of it just being the bourgeois or the political class, um, it do, it's not so neat as to say that it's just one against the other because the bourgeois is clever and segments of the bourgeois actually ally themselves with labor with it with the proletarian side but this is a kind of surreptitious it's a it's a, a secret endeavor to try to maintain these relations so this is what they write here they say uh, these forces that try to oppose the bourgeois like for instance the lower middle class, the small manufacturer, the shopkeeper, the artisan, the peasant, so people that might fall into the category of the kind of petty bourgeois, that kind of in-between of the proletarian and the bourgeois, they only do this to save them from extinction, their existence as factions of the middle class. So they are therefore not revolutionary, but conservative, nay, more. They are reactionary for they try to roll back the wheel of history. You know, try to go back to some romanticized, you know, like feudal re- relationship. So, for a meaningful political revolution to occur, uh, w- will involve the overturning of the entire enterprise of the bourgeois by the majority. Now, what they why they applaud this or why they hope for this so much is that it will be completely different to any revolution of the past, where revolutions of the past, they say, were about. You know, not the majority taking over power, but just another minority trying to take over power in the form of coups or, you know, conspiracies or anything like that. Now with this, because it would be the majority undoing that that minority, then power, as we understand it, will dissolve because power will be uh, held in the hands of everyone. And with that, if it exists everywhere, it will exist nowhere. And for that to happen, it must happen on a global scale where each nation's proletarian class must first overturn their kind of specific bourgeois so that all the proletarians can, um, the proletarian class can galvanize into one, uh, one global phenomenon, one global class. And for them, this is really inevitable because the dynamics of capitalism cannot be sustained, especially if we consider the ecological crises, the uh, contradiction of extracting maximum labor from people as they're being paid the minimum, you know, and so on and so forth. Now, one of the things that I don't really know how to account for, I guess you could, I think it's Harvey mentioned, talks about this a little bit, um, is something, or Lazzarato, you know, these kind of new materialist, materialist these kind of uh newer marxists is consider something like credit where if someone is getting paid very little by the capitalist they can still get whatever they want with credit and they don't have to think about the consequences it can the consequences can be deferred now i'm not saying that people who use credit are bad but this is just one thing to consider um as far as uh a way that capitalism keeps itself going that marx and engels didn't predict, at least not in this text, because I haven't read all of Capital yet. Um, but anyway, so yeah, that puts us here into chapter two, proletarians and communists. So the proletarians are different from the communists for two reasons, um, or the the communists are distinct from other uh, working class parties for two reasons. So in the national struggle of the proletarians of the different countries, they point out and bring to the front the common interests of the entire proletariat independently of all nationality. So here they're looking at the common stake that all wage earners have in this movement, not like it just being about specific nations having specific goals in mind. And then number two, in the various stages of development, which the struggles of the working class against the bourgeoisie has to pass through, they always and everywhere represent the interests of the movement as a whole. So they don't see any movement as being a kind of haphazard occurrence. You know, it all works within this uh, this broader movement towards communism. So the communists then, in, in relation to all these other working class parties, have the most knowledge of this subject matter because they know they have a more holistic view of what's going on. They don't burden themselves with abstract conceptions. They are interested primarily in the revolutionary potential of what is going on in the material conditions of the world. They just look at what's happening and they prescribe, they may not prescribe, but they recognize the trend by looking at the real things happening. So one of the other things that is important to know about the communist uh, mindset is that the distinguishing feature of communism is not the abolition of property generally, but the abolition of bourgeois property. And because uh, bourgeois property is kind of the archetype of what we know to be private property then, it means the abolition of private property. Now this is a little bit tricky though because they are essentially writing under the uh, pretense that any and all private property has already been appropriated. So, like, on the one hand, they aren't, like, talking about that, you know, that farmer who has, like, a little plot of land that they're growing food on or, or, you know, animals on or something. Yet at the same time, they kind of are because it's difficult to imagine undoing the bourgeois relations without undoing every understanding that we have about private property and about, you know, the individual's right to private property simply because property, in their words, is based on the antagonism of capital and wage labor. And the the big irony in all of this is that capital is a kind of collective product uh, that needs, it needs cooperation for it to emerge. And it is in that way, they call it uh, a social power. But we, we shouldn't be fooled here, because if capital is converted into common property— it won't follow then that personal property is transformed into social property. It is only the social character of the property that is changed. It, it, it loses its class character. So this is what they mean when they imagine like overturning property relations. Now when it comes to wage labor, and the laborer, I guess a little bit more uh, specifically, is they don't want to do away with the appro- laborer's appropriation of the products of labor. What they want to do away with is the miserable character of this appropriation. So they see, like for Marx and Engels, they see almost um, a necessity or kind of a human quality in us navigating the world. And what that means is like making things in the world, working upon the world, working upon the land. And having a, by having a connection with that labor, or the products of that labor, we can have a more fulfilling connection to ourselves now if that capacity is taken away as it is in capitalism because we are alienated from the things that we produce that is it you know we make it or we make a part of a thing which then at the at the end of the assembly line will come together we don't own that thing the capitalist owns that thing that they can then sell for more money than we were paid to make that thing So we lose this connection, not only to ourselves, but to the world as well, in that we aren't able to actually participate in it. We are totally alienated from that. So this is what they mean, at least I believe, when they say they don't wanna do away with the appropriation of the products of labor by the person that made it, or by the laborer, but just the kind of miserable character, what I take to mean the alienating component of this appropriation. So under capitalism, laborers are essentially given small satisfactions to keep them going. Uh, Under communism, however, accumulated accumulated labor is but a means to widen, to enrich, to promote the existence of the laborers. Whereas under capitalism, capital and products are personified, whereas laborers and people are uh, objectified. So the bourgeois and, and capitalist Try they try to convince us that this is, uh, you know, the way that freedom manifests itself. You are free to work wherever you want. You are free to buy whatever you want. For Marx and Engels, that is only a freedom, uh, that is a relative freedom in relation to what we saw prior, like with feudalism in the Middle Ages or slavery or anything like that. But they say that it pales in comparison to the kinds of freedom that will be permitted in communism where people are, for them, will be more open to do things that they want to do and not shackled to their labor for someone else that they don't get the kind of satisfaction from that they desire, that they really yearn for as humans. But of course, the critics have a lot to say. The critics say, well, Marx, Engels, how can you claim to provide freedom if you're going to do away with something like private property? And they say quite easily because... Right now, only one tenth in their example, probably even less than that, actually own property. If we think of it today, how many people can actually claim to own the land that they live on? The bank owns it. Own, owns it almost all the time in the form, and you pay them back in the form of mortgages. That the interest rates are designed in such a way as to maximize the amount of money they can take from you without making you go bankrupt which is just almost another form of wage labor. But it's a kind of wage labor that you conduct, not in an overt way, where you gotta walk to a factory or something and and work and be alienated. It permeates all of your life, where you have to be conscious of everything you buy, where you're gonna work, how much money you're gonna make to pay off this, you know, loan-sharking bank. And of course, we don't think about it in these terms, because ideology that is, capitalist ideology, has become naturalized and normalized. So this doesn't appear to us as a form of oppression or a form of domination or hegemony. It is rather just what we accept to be the norm. It is just the way things are. And in many cases, we tend to think like, oh, well, this is the way things have always been. Or we say it's better than it used to be. So therefore, we should be totally complacent. We should be satisfied with it. And we will see the end of it, at least the Marxist says uh, we will see the end of this kind of naturalized ideology with the end of capital. But the bourgeois, you know, to the to the Marxist uh, chanter, has many criticisms of the, of the Marxist project. So they say, like, you to the to the Marxist, the bourgeois says, well, you just want you know another form of. Let me back up a minute. One of the ways that this ideology is naturalized. It's through something like schooling, and this comes out in the work of Louis uh, Althusser and uh, you know insert any number of thinkers who've kind of worked on this. Like Gramsci, of course, would fit into that as well. Uh, the bourgeois says to the Marxist, like when it comes to education, it's not that you are interested in emancipating people. You are interested in just kind of uh, kind of teaching your own ideology in schools. But the communist responds by saying, well, no, because at the very uh, fabric of this school is not going to be predicated upon the maintenance of private relations or, or private um, private property relations or exploitation or anything like that. It's going to be like a purely public phenomenon. One of the other bourgeois criticisms would be that, well, when it comes down to women, that is the place of women in uh, this kind of Uh, revolutionary perspective, the bourgeois says, well, you know, in a very reactionary way that, oh, women don't have uh, the same kind of potential as as other groups, so therefore, you know, they're always destined to be like workers, to which the communist responds, of course, that's total hogwash uh, because gender relations, um, they contend, uh, are just, you know, kind of part of this ideology fabricated by the bourgeois to maintain women's oppression. And this is, Engels, I think, writes about this a little bit more in his consideration of um, the division of labor in the household being something that, you know, sets the tone for capitalist economy, or at least participates in it and and, and helps um, keep it going. The bourgeois might also respond by saying, well, you must have nations. You You have to have nations that have different ideas, different identities, different kind of small variations in their economic relations and, and so on, whereas the communist recognizes that the national identity doesn't really exist anymore, and to say it does is purely an illusion because things are just given over to capital. Capital doesn't see borders. Capital goes wherever it wants. So this reveals in Marx and Engels's project a kind of relativism, and I'm, I'm saying that with kind of scare quotes, where they write does it require deep intuition to comprehend that man's ideas, views, and conceptions, in one word, man's consciousness, changes with every change in the conditions of his material existence, in his social relations, and his social life? So that reveals that Marx and Engels recognize that this project, this communist movement, is going to occur differently in different places. Different people, different nations have different needs. So therefore, we have to be prepared to recognize that the, this movement is going to happen in somewhat different ways. But what remains consistent is that all these people are wage laborers being exploited by a rich class that benefits from that labor. And so this revolution will be the most radical revolution at all, of all. Because it's you know the majority taking over the power, it will remove exploitation, period. And what will that look like? For them, the proletariat will use its political supremacy to wrest by degrees all capital from the bourgeoisie to centralize all instruments of production in the hands of the state, in other words, of the proletariat organized as the ruling class, and to increase the total productive forces as rapidly as possible. So there are ten components to this. I'm going to read them all out here. Number one. The abolition of property and land and application of all rents of land to public purposes. Number two, a heavy progressive or graduated income tax. Number three, abolition of all rights of inheritance. Number four, confiscation of the property of all emigrants and rebels. Number five, centralization of credit in the hands of the state uh, by means of a national bank with state capital and an exclusive monopoly. Number six, Centralization of the means of communication and transport in the hands of the state. Number seven: extension of factories and instruments of production owned by the state. The bringing into cultivation of wastelands and the improvement of the soil generally in accordance with a common plan. Number eight: equal obligation to all of all to work. Establishment of industrial armies, especially for agriculture. Number nine: combination of agriculture with manufacturing industries. Gradual abolition of all the distinction between town and country by a more equable distribution of the populace over the country. Number 10, free education for all children in public schools. Abolition of children's factory labor in its present form. Combination of education with industrial production. So these are kind of the 10 movements here. And with all this will emerge the free development of each and the condition for the free development of all, or as the condition of the free development of all. And that presses us here into Chapter 3, Socialist and Communist Literature. And in this chapter, they're going to consider the ways that there are uh, bad socialists, reactionary or conservative socialists, that aren't moving uh, the revolution forward. So they start out here with reactionary socialists, specifically the first kind of subgroup, are the feudal socialists. So these were the kind of uh, mobilized, these ideas were put forward by the aristocracies in France and England that were opposed to modern bourgeois society. And they produced little pamphlets, which signaled or signified for um, Marx and Engels a kind of literary battle alone. Like it wasn't an actual uh, conflict, it was just a superficial one almost. But these aristocracies essentially co-opted the plight of the proletariat so they were like si- they were siding with the proletariat but not to move the revolution forward because they wanted to go back to the old aristocratic um, forms under under like feudalism so this reveals that they weren't actually concerned with the proletariat they were concerned with them maintaining their own power returning to a time when they had more power so that's feudal socialism then you have petty bourgeois socialism which is essentially the class, the petty bourgeois, the class that kind of exists, as we already said, between the bourgeois and the proletariat uh, that emerged from the Burgesses and like looked like small peasant proprietors, people who owned shops, stuff like that. So they kind of credit, Marx and Engels credit you know, this group for uh, its precision in dissecting the contradictions imminent to capitalism. That is, they were kind of subject to the, the, the pitfalls of capitalism and so had a a, a pretty nuanced perspective about what was going on, but they still only did it to kind of romanticize old relations where they could exist freely, like, again, under feudalism. So they aren't the aristocracy. They're still peasant-like. They might have a little bit of disposable income, but they are only doing this. They are only mobilizing this rhetoric in order to uh, move back Move the clock back, which of course Marx and Engels don't want to do. They want to go forward. They don't want to go back, and that puts us here into the third subcategory, where we have, and this we're still under reactionary socialism here. Uh, the third subcategory: German or true socialism. So this socialism essentially emerged when French socialist philosophy and ideas found its way into Germany in the 18th century. So uh, the the German thinkers appropriated this uh, this thought, applying it to their own setting, which was obviously different. Germany and France are, are incredibly different countries. Uh, applying it not only to the different kind of historical setting, uh, but or kind of historical conditions, but also to the st- uh, differing philosophical conditions. And with this, the kind of German uh, idealist tendency took over the French revolutionary spirit, reading in their words in, for Marx and Engels, not the interests of the proletariat, but instead the interests of like human nature. So they made this, uh, what they were reading in the French philosophy, they were making it more abstract than it was. So they were completely decontextualizing the conversation and making it about like universal human truths, or making it about, like, this idea about spirit or something like that, which, of course, this is Marx's gripe with, with Hegel, because Hegel is talking about things like oppression, but in totally abstract ways, not considering, you know, oppression as it actually happens in people's lives. So because of this, this kind of German socialism, or this true true socialism, in, in quotes, um, was trying to find a kind of an, o- an overall human project to do that of course couldn't ever be mobilized because it was completely detached so in marx and engels's words it went to the extreme length of directly opposing what they called the brutally destructive tendency of communism and of proclaiming its supreme and impartial contempt of all class struggles so it's like the reactionary perspective that just says like um you know A good one would be like in the in the states now how you know conservative people appropriate the words of Martin Luther King Jr. to say like oh we believe in equality therefore we shouldn't have things like affirmative action or therefore we shouldn't have any kind of like um, you know counsel or keeping making people um, holding people uh, to blame the other the other word is eluding me holding other people to blame for they're not being equal, because we, we live in a post-racist world, apparently. So the kind of same thing was happening here with German socialism, where they were saying, like, well, this is a overall human project, and to reduce it to something like class would be wrong, right? That, that is limiting the project, whereas Marx and Engels are like, no, this is exactly what's happening, just look around you. So here we move, then, from reactionary socialism to conservative or bourgeois socialism, So these are comprised of the uh, philanthropists, the economists, the humanitarians, etc., that wish to, in their words, secure the continued existence of bourgeois society. But they, you know, try to make society quote-unquote better. Where they want, in their words here again, all the advantages of modern social conditions without the struggles and dangers necessarily um, resulting therefrom. So it wants the proletarian to Be made um, content so that they stop being mad, so that they don't want to overthrow any of the conditions, so that they are essentially complacent. And of course, this group prides reform over revolution because reform keeps the same capitalistic relations intact while only changing, you know, minuscule little things to maybe make conditions better, which always kind of defers judgment day. It refers defers um, the onset of uh, communism. So they write here that you know they offer free trade. They say that free trade is for the benefit of the working class. They say that protective duties are for the benefit of the working class. They say that prison reform is for the benefit of the working class. So this is the last word and the only seriously meant word of bourgeois socialism. And from here, we move into the third and final one, critical, utopian socialism, and communism. So this perspective essentially sought to inculcate universal asceticism and social leveling in its crudest form. So asceticism being like uh, restricting your um, striving for pleasure or, or you know, your own wants and needs. So this perspective sought to inculcate uh, universal asceticism and social leveling in its crudest form. So this emerged around the onset of bourgeois society as a reaction, as though with, you know, the basic um, kind of stuff offered by uh, the bourgeois at the time that it kind of first emerged, as though that was alone, these conditions were enough to bring us into a kind of like utopian um, system, as though we could just suddenly remove the shackles and we we would have arrived. Whereas for Marx and Engels, it's going to be a lot more difficult, dare I say, a lot more bloody uh, and violent to arrive at that point. It, do- it won't just happen overnight as these people kind of made it out to seem. And that presses us here into the last chapter, which is just a couple of pages. Chapter 4, Position of the Communists in Relation to the Various Existing Opposition Parties. And to end this, I'm just going to read uh, the bottom half of one of, uh, of the last page where they lay out what it looks like, what communism looks like. So they write, In short, the communists everywhere support every revolutionary movement against the existing social and political order of things. In all these movements, they bring to the front, as the leading question in each, the property question, no matter what its degree of development at the time. Finally, they labor everywhere for the union and agreement of the democratic parties of all countries, the communists disdain to conceal their views and aims. They openly declare that their ends can be attained only by the forcible overthrow of all existing social conditions. Let the ruling class, classes tremble at a communist revolution. The proletarians have nothing to lose but their chains. They have a world to win. Working men of all countries unite. And that's how it ends. Uh, so yeah, let me know what you thought. Uh, if there's... Anything I omitted, obviously, if someone is versed, you know, in Marxist doctrine, uh, you, you know that the Communist Manifesto is not the place to go for what Marx was getting at. You know, you'd go to Capital, Gundrissa for something like that, or for more of that. This is just kind of the Reader's Digest version of what communism is, will do, how we will arrive at it. It is also the Reader's Digest version of what, uh, what is wrong with capitalism capital and capitalism and the exploitation imminent to it. Um but yeah, if there's you know anything I omitted that you think is present in this text that I should have spoken about and like let me know if or if I mischaracterized Marx and Engels at all, I'd love to know about it. Um and yeah, on that note, stay safe out there everyone and take care.